0: church it's an honor and a pleasure for me to be here Good morning. and Good morning. Uh, morning and I have to admit this is a very sobering um, sermon for me to give because my wife and I have talked over it over and we've decided we're probably going to be transferring membership to a church a little closer to home and uh, which and I was really sad driving up here because I'm going to miss all of you, and miss this church very much. But I hope, I, I hope you'll still let me come back once in a while. <laughs> uh, hope I'm still welcome. Um, but I've been coming here for 10 years now, and the time has gone by so quickly. Uh, it's been a wonderful church, and I've uh, really been blessed by it. And uh, so I'll certainly miss all of you. And so I want to thank all of you for the kindness that you've shown to me and to my family since I've been here. Uh, I remember when I would bring my, my brother-in-law's would come up, and you would offer the pulpit to him, and he would give sermons sometimes. So that was uh, really encouraging for him, too. He's in medical. His name is Robin, and... Uh, He's a senior in medical school in the Philippines. We tried to get him into school here in the United States, but we could not get a visa for him. So we ended up sending him to school overseas. And that's probably a good thing, because it was about 10 times cheaper than Loma Linda. So uh, it probably worked out for the best. But we've really enjoyed coming here. and, And I love all of you, and we hope to see you again. Um the title of my sermon today is What are your goals as a Christian? Now, every day we have to make decisions about what we're going to do, what kind of people we're going to be. And I was reading in the book Education, which I'm really enjoying a lot. And mrs white says that every decision that we make is a reflection of our characters and so whether you're in a group of people or you're by yourself remember that the decisions that you're currently making reflect who you really are and when i started looking at all the decisions that i personally make and thinking from the point of view they're a reflection of my character i realized that I have a lot of room for growth. I can be thoughtless and absent-minded and selfish and do a lot of things that are not always quite up to code. But I mean, I'm being inspired now to try to uh, reassess my own actions and own characters and think about how I can be a better blessing to others. And every day affords opportunities to be a help and blessing to other people. And as Christians, I think we need to try to avail ourselves. For me, that's often hard to do. When I come home in the evening from work, I'm really exhausted. I have, uh, when I'm on the clinic at the dental school, I'll have nine students under my direction, and they'll have typically 18, this is in the morning, uh, 18 patients to take care of. And so I have uh, like 27 people that I'm looking out after. It's probably similar to what a physician is doing in terms of numbers, I suspect. Physicians are seeing lots and lots of, of patients and people. It's getting really a challenge. Um, but oftentimes I will stay. This past week I was leaving work between 7.30 and 8 o'clock every day because after especially laboratory classes, students don't know what to do. And so I would have to stay with them and try to coach them through and demonstrate, actually demonstrate how to do the projects they're working on. And we used to have a motto at the dental school which was, see one, do one, teach one. Which was to say, you're expected to watch someone do a procedure and then you did it, you practice it yourself once, and then you were qualified to teach somebody else. <laughs> and so, and that's what we used to do, but that has fallen by the wayside now, and we're big into rubrics and competency and summative exam, formative exams, and we're doing a lot of testing, but I'm afraid we're not doing a lot of teaching. So I try to make up for that by staying with the students and teaching them, and It has been remarkably, astonishingly fruitful. I had a student the other day tell me, um, I was helping her with her lab project, and she said, "You, you have no idea how much I appreciate your help. And I thought that was a really nice comment. My next door neighbor across the street, Dr. Ng, he's a ophthalmologist. His wife came over about two weeks ago on a uh, Sunday afternoon, actually a Saturday, it was a Saturday evening, and she had in tow a student from India who was a dental student trying to get into school here in the United States. And she brought this student over who's applying to Loma Linda, and she didn't, my neighbor didn't say anything, but the assumed reason for the visit was, is there anything you can do to help this girl? And so she was taking an entrance examination in a, in a week or so. I set, so I sat down with her. My wife and I sat down with her for a few hours. And I tried tutoring her on what is, she'll have to do when she's here. And she didn't do as well on the exam as we had hoped. So she's actually applying to other schools. But she sent me a note. She said, The note went something like this. Thank you so much for your help. A good teacher motivates his students to be good learners. You have encouraged me to be a better learner. And I thought that was really a, a, a wonderful blessing to have. I mean, we don't get compliments. I don't get compliments very often. I used to work as an engineer, and I would sit in front of a computer all day like seven hours a day I'd be on this computer trying to solve problems, and I never once had the computer say thank you. Um, you know, and I did that for years, and it was a little bit cold and impersonal. But when you work with people and you can actually help them, it's a wonderful blessing. And one of the things that i that I think we all try to do, I know all of you here try to do, is you're always looking for How can you help? How can you be a blessing to someone? How can you reflect the grace and the love of Christ to everyone around you? And that's not humanly possible to do. We we need divine help to overcome ourselves to be a blessing to others. Um, And I think that's one of the, the, the great advantages of being a Christian is that you can ask for divine help, to know what to say to people, to know what to do for them and how to do it. and God I think inspires us in in truly wonderful ways and it's it's a lot of fun. I mean I had on Thursday at five o'clock all the actually at four thirty, all the other teachers, there were eight teachers in this lab class, eight other or, Seven of them left at 4.30, and I'm the only one there. And so I had 24 students lined up behind me asking for advice. And I ended up staying till almost, it was like 10 minutes to 8 when I finally got all 24 of them sorted out. And I would show them how to do the project. And they'd been struggling for like two hours to solve this problem. And one student came up, couldn't solve it. And I picked up a few instruments, and I solved the problem in five seconds. And they went, "How did you do that?" You know. And I really, and I'm not that. Um, I don't consider myself smarter or better than anybody else. In fact, as I've told you before, all the doctors that I work with are much smarter, much brighter, and much more talented than I am. And if you don't believe me, just ask them. They'll tell you how smart they are. So they're they're all incredibly clever. And so I, you know, when I try to help the students, I'm like struggling to know what to do. And I, I actually feel like the Lord shows me exactly what to do and how to do it. And that is inspiring to me. I mean, it encourages me. And I feel like, Or my wife has said, you know, when I'm getting ready to go to work, I get kind of excited because I know that I'm going to see miracles happen. And my wife has said to me a couple of times when I'm getting ready for work, she says, the only time you're really happy is when you're going to work. (laughs) Well, that's not not strictly true, but uh, I feel like that the Lord inspires us and guides us. That's the advantage of being a Christian. The the true advantage of being a Christian is that you can be guided and inspired to help and be a blessing. But there's conditions to this, to this help. We have to obey Him. We have to recognize that He's in charge. We take orders from Him. And we have to be faithful to Him. I want to read a passage out of the book, Education, and this is about Joseph. It says, as a shepherd boy tending his father's flocks, Joseph's pure and simple life had favored the development of both physical and mental powers. Now, whenever I read a book, I try to read in between the lines. What are the principles involved here? What is the underlying theory, the underlying flow of the current here? Now, it says here his early life favored, it says pure and simple life, favored the development of both physical and mental powers. What does that tell us? It tells us we have a responsibility to develop our physical and mental powers and to to grow and to, improve constantly. So that's that's actually and, and this basic idea that we have a responsibility to develop ourselves to be the best possible is an idea that she brings out in many different ways throughout this book. And so that's something that we need to think about. Are we developing our abilities to the greatest possible extent? Are we, Trying to put ourselves in a position where we can be the greatest blessing to others. I had a student come to me the other day, and most of the dental students want to get out of school and go straight into practice. You do not have to do a residency if you're a dentist, although it's getting to be, as time goes on each year, it's getting to be kind of more and more important that you do some kind of residency and get some experience. Part of that is that when you graduate, you're relatively ignorant, and you're very inexperienced. The first year is always the hardest. You make the most mistakes your first, or first two or three years. So if you can be under the guidance, the tutelage of a seasoned, trained doctor, they can save you from a 1,000 griefs. So I really encourage the students to, to uh, do a residency when they get out, any kind of residency, whatever they, whatever they like. So a student, I said, what are you going to do? And he said, Well, I just want to get out and practice. And I said to him, How can you train and prepare yourself to be a better doctor? What can you do to improve your skills, to up your game? And I said, And then I reminded him of all the things he didn't know. When you graduate, you don't really know how to place implants, which are getting to be popular and financially lucrative. Um, They don't do a lot of oral surgery by the time they graduate. They've maybe done 30, 40, 50 extractions, which is not a lot. You actually have to do hundreds of, of a procedure before you get good at it. It took me 10 years to learn how to make a decent denture, Took me about 15 years to learn to do reasonably good oral surgery. So experience is very, very important. So I said to the student, what, you know, what can you do to up your game, to make yourself better? And he started thinking about, and I reminded him of all the things he didn't know. And then he finally said, you know, maybe I really need to think about going back and doing a residency program. So I think experience is really good. But anyway, I mean, I can hardly get through a single sentence in this book without stopping and going out on a long tangent and realizing there's lots of other consequences to what she's saying. Every sentence is, there's underlying principles. And it's really interesting to read a book and try to figure out what are the underlying principles and map them out and see where they lead. So when I read through books now, I used to be able to read a book a day when I was younger. I can't do that anymore because I get caught. You know, like every paragraph or every sentence, I get caught and I think, well, gee, what does this mean? And, but it's much more meaningful. I mean, I read this book about 25 or 30 years, actually 35 years ago. I think I read it in two or three days. But I didn't really get anything out of it because I wasn't digging. I wasn't trying to determine what the underlying principles were. Anyway, let's go on. Mrs. White writes, by communion with God through nature and the study of great truths, of the great truths handed down as a sacred trust from father to son, he had gained strength of mind and firmness of principle. So how do we gain strength of mind and firmness of principle? Well, she says it's by communion with God. Now let's dissect that a little bit. What did, who do we communicate with? Who do we listen to? Family members? How do we spend our time, our free time? I was down at the university church, and the senior pastor said, he was talking about these ultra-violent movies where they kill two or three hundred people in one movie, and they're very popular now, and he said, you know which movies I'm talking about. You've all seen them. You've all watched them. And there was kind of a murmur through the crowd as everybody kind of put their head down and pretended that they really didn't watch those kind of movies. But a lot of people do. And I, I started thinking about it and I thought, what do how do we spend our spare time? Who are we communicating with when we're doing that? When we're watching a movie or if we're playing a video I mean I talk to students sometimes. They'll come and ask me a question and I'll start explaining the answer and they have their, their phone out and they're playing a video game as I'm talking to them. I mean, that is like, I'm like astonished. And I tell them, look, if you ever do that to a patient, you're going to lose all of your patients. You can't do that. You have to be attentive and alert and pay attention. So I am very much afraid that the majority of the younger generation does not know how to listen and how to communicate. I don't know if any of you agree with me, but they have a, I mean, I was showing a student the other day, Uh, she came to me and she was stuck in a lab project and I said, here's how you do it. So I started showing her, she got her cell phone out, she got some text messages and she goes, oh, I have to leave. So she comes back 15 minutes later and goes, are you done yet? Like, you know, I'm supposed to do her project for her. I was like, kind of astonished. And she was very sincere and all smiles and everything, but she has no clue that she completely missed 15 minutes that are very important to her education, how to solve this particular problem. And she just wanted to know if it was done or not so she could get it signed off and continue on and do something else. She had no interest in really learning or understanding. And unfortunately, there's a lot of students like that. I mean, they're not all like that, but I think maybe a quarter of them really don't want to learn. They just want to get through. They really don't want to learn. That frightens me very, very much, because there's so much you need to learn. In whatever your profession is, I don't care if you're a, uh, an arborist or somebody who's a woodcutter and cuts down trees. I remember hearing, a, a, it was a kind of a sermon on the radio, and they had this arborist talking, and he said, knowledge is very expensive. He said, I was self-trained to be an arborist, to be a tree cutter, and early in my career, a client called me up and they wanted this, you know, two and a half, three foot diameter pine tree growing right in front of their house, cut down. It was right by the front door and it was slightly leaning over the house. But, you know, he's, he's a sharp guy, he, he knows how to do it, and he tied some ropes to the tree and he undercut it on this side, and he thought he was kinda, kinda, by cutting a wedge, the center of gravity would be over here. And when he finally got all the way through, the tree started to fall, snapped the ropes that he had on it, and landed on the house. And crushed the roof of the house. Now, this happened about, I don't know, it was probably 30 years ago. And he said, It cost me $20,000 to repair the roof of this house from the tree damage. And he said, Knowledge is very, very expensive. And it, it, it's true. Think about the knowledge that Christ gave to us. Did he pay dearly for that? He did he paid very very dearly to come down and give us the knowledge of grace to explain to us how much god loves us and cares for us he paid very very dearly for that and knowledge is expensive i mean do any of you know what the i what's the tuition at the medical school now anybody know it must be what 70 80000 or something Plus living, so you're talking 70000 a year or something. Okay. Well, the dental school is now up to 125000 It's the most expensive professional education in the world. And so the students graduate about $500,000 in debt, and it takes them up to 20 years to pay that off. I was talking to a student the other day, and I said, so are you gonna, you know, when you graduate, are you gonna move and get a home? And the student said, It'll be 20 years before I can think about having. I have a mortgage to pay on my my school loan, and it's at a relatively you know you're talking eight to ten percent interest on school loans, not a four and a half percent interest like you get on a home. So the the payments are are horrid. They're terrible. So he said it'll be probably 20 years before I'll be able to afford a home, and which is really a tragedy. But. Knowledge is very, very expensive. And with that in mind, when I look at books like this, I think what cost went into making this book and bringing this knowledge to us. And more so in the Bible. Over periods of thousands of years, God was laboring and struggling and working to give us wisdom. We've been given incredible gifts in the Bible and I think in the spirit of prophecy. Now, some of you may not know who Ellen White was, who wrote this, or you may not think she's anything special, but I really believe that she was inspired. And I couldn't write one paragraph in this book. I don't have the knowledge or the skill to do it. And she talks about things that just, every sentence amazes me and startles me. Now. I actually want, I have to admit, I'm biased, I'm prejudiced. I want to believe she's inspired. Why? Is it because I'm an Ellen G. White fanboy? No. It's because if she's not inspired, then I can't be inspired. And you can't be inspired. I mean, if God doesn't inspire people in this way anymore, then what hope have I of being inspired and guided? So, one of our primary assumptions as a Christian, I think, needs to be that God can inspire, guide, and lead us. And He inspires each of us in different ways. If you're a mother, I'm sure He inspires you how to be a mother and how to take care of your kids, or a doctor, how to take care of your patients, or a plumber, how to fix, or a bicycle mechanic. I mean, I consider myself to be an expert bicycle mechanic cuz I've been working on when I was about 7 or 8 years old I wanted a bicycle. So my dad went with me. We went to garage sales and we'd find a wheel here and a frame and one and a seat in another garage sale and we got bushel baskets full of parts. And my dad says, "Here's some tools. Put a bike together." So I put a bike together and it was a a track bike, which has fixed gear, there's only one gear, and to slow down, there's no brakes on it. <laughs> and to slow it down, you start pedaling backwards. And I was a little kid, and this was a bike for a full-grown adult male. And I mean, I couldn't actually sit down on it because it was too big for me, and I rode that around for years. And But I slowly changed and got other bikes. So I've been doing this for, all my life I work on bikes and one of my hobbies is about once a year I'll buy an old bike and fix it up and give it to usually a young person that doesn't have a bicycle. The other day my gardener came over and he brought his wife and his son along and they sat in the car. So my wife invited them for tea and, and entertained them. And, and the kid who was, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. I said, do you have a bicycle? He goes, no. So I had this old bike that I'd been fixing up and I gave him the bike and I had a little plastic tool bag so I gave him some tools to work on it and he was like in seventh heaven. He was just like, wow. He couldn't believe it. It was actually a bike I bought in auction. So it was a a brand new bike but I got it like really cheap and, and gave it to me. He was really encouraged. So anyway, I think I'm, I'm, that I'm a great mechanic, but um, a friend of mine had a bottom bracket, which is the crank bracket changed, and he said it took about 20 minutes for the mechanic to change it. When I do that, it takes me two hours to do it. And so I'm really not that good as I think I am. Yet somehow we all have to go through life and solve a broad range of problems and how do you do that? I count on being inspired and guided and led every time I have a problem to solve or every time I have to talk to somebody. Find the words to help them and encourage them. Give a sermon. I... Most people are very fearful when they have to give sermons or they have to speak in public. I actually like speaking in public because, well that tells you one of two things. Either I feel like God is guiding and inspiring me or I'm very foolish. I'll let you decide which of those is true. But um, I really feel that we need divine inspiration in everything we do. And I count on being inspired and I count on all of you to be inspired. And when you talk to your children, when you talk to your coworkers, it it takes a lot of of wisdom and discretion, especially when you're under pressure. Um, I remember I used to work as an engineer and and one of the uh, other engineers, he, took some software home, installed it on his computer, and a problem came up, and it was the kind of software you could only install in one place, and so I I mentioned that, well, he's got the software that'll solve this on his computer at home, and he can do this, he can solve this problem. And he got really upset, because he'd been found out that he'd taken this software home. And he was a big guy, he was about six foot tall, and he weighed about maybe 240 pounds. And he, after the meeting, he was really mad with me. And he came up to me and he grabbed me, and he picked me up and he pushed me up against the wall. And my feet are dangling on the ground. And he goes, are you calling me a thief? And the secretary walks in just then, and she says to me, do you want me to call security? And I said, no, don't call security. We're just having a man-to-man talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of tried to calm him down a little bit. And I said, well, no, I wasn't calling you a thief. I just said you're the best one to solve this problem. You know, you, you're, you have all the equipment and the knowledge and skills and training, and you're, you're, the be- you're the most qualified to do this. He goes, I am? I go, of course you are. <laughs> and so he calmed down a little bit. And I said, there was no insult intended. It was actually a compliment. And uh, they've given you the job. So if nobody's thinking twice about it, um, you're, you're in good shape. Don't worry about it. And he goes, oh, yeah, okay. So he calmed down. And But you know, whenever you're confronted with a difficult situation, you need to find the right words to say. Because people today are not as gracious as they were when I was a little kid. When I was younger, even, I had thieves in my town that I knew, um, and they were respectable citizens. They would only rob the rich, and they would only rob the house when there was nobody there, so they wouldn't frighten anybody. They were very principled men, <laughs> and, and they were nice to the old ladies, and you know, they would help old ladies across the street, and they were actually kind of respected in town, <laughs> even though they were thieves. I mean, there was a, maybe it wasn't quite respect, but they were, you know, they were considered harmless. You know, everybody knew that they would never hurt anybody. And they, people respected them for that in a way. I mean, I'm from Chicago, home of Al Capone. You know, when I grew up in my neighborhood, it was only a crime to steal if you got caught. Okay, so that's how, life was when I was growing up, and one of my best friends ended up in Cook County Jail. Um, but anyway, and I think the Lord saved me from that. I really feel like the Lord saves us from unfavorable influences. He takes us away from them. I was talking to a, a former um, heroin addict, and you know he filled out his health questionnaire and said he was, he'd been addicted to heroin, and so he can't. He's a weakness for pain meds, and I'm not supposed to give him any narcotic medicine because he'll tip over the edge and get re addicted. And so I said, "How did you get off of heroin?" He said, "Well, I had to move to a different city, and disconnect, get a new phone number, a new address, and stay away from all my old friends. I had to completely change my environment." And he says, that was the only way that I could get away with it. I, I tried to get off of it before, but my friends would come over and they'd try to help me out and give me a little bit of something to tide me over. And he said it just was impossible. So when, when you want to go through a transition, change when you want to repent, you really have to completely change your environment, the things that you look at, the people you talk to, And it's really only then that we can make a change. Repenting is very hard. It's humanly impossible. I think we need divine help to do it. If it was easy, I don't think Christ or John the Baptist or anybody else would have needed to come down and explain these things to us. If it was that simple as, well, here's the right thing to do. Oh, I can do that. Christ never would have needed to come. But it's not that easy. What about the people of Israel when when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments and explained the Levitical laws. And what did the people say? All that you say we will do. Did they do it? Absolutely not. I mean, it's not humanly possible to be a Christian. To Christians, I have to say, are probably some of the most ambitious people in the world because they are trying to be more than human. They're actually trying to be divine. And the astonishing thing is, is that many succeed in doing it. And that encourages me very much. I mean, you know, we have problems in this church and there are people that don't get along, which is really a sad thing. And I think, I'm hoping and praying, we'll learn to be forgiving to each other. But on the outside, it's a lot harder. I mean, I used to work as an engineer uh, at Lockheed, and I actually had someone try to kill me on the job. He considered me a competitor for promotion, and he thought the best way to make sure he got it, and not me, was to eliminate me on a dangerous construction site, just give me a little push over the edge, and, and um, down I'd go, and fortunately, I. I was able to, and I don't know how I did it. We were on a catwalk, and there was pipe and angle iron sticking up about 20 feet below. And there was another catwalk about six feet over here on the other side of this this giant tube that was being built. And he pushed me over the edge, and somehow when I was on one foot like this, I was able to jump all the way over to the other catwalk, six feet away. Now, I don't know how I did that. And he he was astonished that I did it, too. But I feel like the Lord saved my life somehow. He picked me up and carried me over. But, you know, we have problems in the church, but on the outside, things are a lot harder. I was in the Army in Vietnam, and I used to get shot at. And I would get shot at a lot more often by my own friends and and fellow soldiers than i would by the enemy because i don't know quite why that worked out that way but you know on the outside things can be very very difficult um, so but in the church in spite of the problems we have it's still a relatively safe environment and i think it's a safer place because we have an ideal of how we're supposed to treat each other follow the example of christ and i mean christ was incredibly forgiving i mean look at at Judas Judas betrays him and Christ just before the betrayal calls him friend and speaks kindly and gently to him. And that's kind of an example that that when people insult me and belittle me and I'm sure I give them many reasons to do that but when they get upset with me I try to remember what Christ did and I'll try to say something encouraging to them like Thank you so much for your wise counsel. I hope that I can find the wisdom to follow it. I say that to my wife sometimes. She goes, Don't give me that. You know, she but she's heard it so many times. Um, or she'll say, is that a no? You know, because she's heard me say that before. But we we really need to. Find out ways to forgive and encourage to follow the example of Christ. Okay, anyway, we've actually gotten through two sentences in this book. Um, okay, this is, but this one's really important to me. By communion with God through nature and the study of great truths handed down as a sacred trust from father to son, he had gained strength of mind and firmness of principle. Now we have more advantages today than Joseph did. His Bible was not written down, probably. That he was, I mean, the Bible hadn't been written in his day. It was written later by Moses, hundreds of years later. So they didn't have a written tradition like we do. They didn't have dozens and dozens of, of prophets who left their writings. So we have a greater legacy than then, and yet, Joseph, in their relative ignorance, still had enough wisdom and knowledge handed down from father to son to formulate sound principles of living and kindness and hospitality that he was able to generate strength of mind and firmness of principles. Now, if he was able to do that with the little knowledge that he had of divine grace, shouldn't we be able to do better? having the example of Christ to follow? I hope so. Okay. Now remember what happened to Joseph. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, went down to Egypt and lived as a slave for many years and was eventually thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. Now talk about someone who got all the bad breaks. I think Joseph got a lot of bad breaks. He got His brothers hated him. He got thrown into a pit, uh, sold into slavery, was a slave, falsely accused, put into prison. But even in prison, it was said of Joseph that any, if anything was done, Joseph was the doer of it. Now that sentence astonishes me. Can you imagine being thrown into prison? And if something needs to be cleaned up, you're the one that goes and cleans it, or something needs to be repaired, you, the prisoner, go and do it. And I'm actually led to believe that Joseph actually had prison guards who were assigned to help him because he was so clever and smart and inspired to know how to solve problems that the guards were taking orders from him on what to do and how to do it. Now, if Joseph could do that in prison, shouldn't we, who are free, be able to do more? I mean, this is how, when I read this, I interpret it, is is if God can inspire Joseph to solve these problems, can't God today still inspire us? I expect great things from everybody I work with because I expect that God's going to inspire them. I was talking to the students in my group in one of the labs. Usually I had 13 students in my group the other day, Thursday. And I said to them, who are you going to be when you graduate? And they said, I don't know, who are we going to be? And he said, you are going to be the best doctor in the world for every patient that you see. You're going to be the best doctor in the world. And don't ever forget that. No one's gonna be as careful or as compassionate or caring as you are or as thorough and attentive. You are an example of Christ to every patient you see. You are going to be very, very good. And I said, that is a promise. And I will often say that to students when they're in very, very difficult situations, when they feel they can't solve the problem. I'll say to them, you have to solve this problem because you are the only doctor on earth who can. This patient is too poor to go to a private doctor. They have no insurance. The specialists have come over and recommended that they be seen by a specialist. There's no way this patient can afford that. It's you or nothing. You have to solve this problem. For this patient, you are the best doctor. You are the only doctor. And they rise to the occasion. I'm astonished how well they do. It's, it's really inspiring to see. But they need someone to believe in them. I've been a, a, a dentist for 37 years, and I've learned one thing, maybe only one thing, and that is, what people need more than anything is encouragement and hope. You have to give them hope and encouragement. You have to convince them that they're going to get, there's a possibility that they might get better. And that with their cooperation and and the doctors and divine help maybe things can get better. Now not everybody does get better. In fact, I was listening to a physician the other day, an internal medicine doctor, and he goes, You know, most of my patients are old. They get sick. They come into the hospital for two weeks. We spend $200,000 on them, and then they die. You know, so he says, Nobody gets off this planet alive. We all succumb to disease and sickness. We all eventually die. But, you know, even as a Christian, we have hope. That God loves us loves each individual one of us so much that he says you're my friend I care about you I'm coming back for you I'm not going to let you go and what kind of love is that that God loves us so much that he's going to come back and resurrect us from the dead and he wants us to be with him in heaven. He values us so much. He wants our company. You know when I when I think about this, I think that I'm I'm thinking from a human point of view. This is probably not the way it really is, but but from my my lowly human point of view, I think maybe God's lonely. Maybe he values our company he enjoys conversations with us i mean i when i'm at school i love all my students i love talking to them and working with them they're all trying really most of them are trying really hard to help their patients and to learn the things they need to do and it's it's inspiring to work with people that are trying hard and they're sincere and they're intelligent and they're talented I mean, it's like, to me, it's really inspiring to be with them. So, and I, I really like my students, and I think God likes us. He likes each and every one of you, in spite of all your faults and all your shortcomings and all my faults. And God's, how can God love me? How can my wife love me? What does she possibly see in me? You know, I'm not tall, dark, handsome, and rich. I'm none of those, okay. But somehow my wife says, the thing that she likes more than anything in the world is sitting down and having dinner with me or sitting together in bed in the evening and just talking. She says, this is my favorite activity in the whole world, just talking to me. I go, how could I, I mean, why? I mean, that's, that's a gift from heaven to have somebody that that cares about you that way. And I think God cares about us in the same way, much more so. Well anyway, let's go on. Okay, so Joseph was sold into slavery. In the crisis of his life, while making the terrible journey from his childhood home in Canaan to the bondage which awaited him in Egypt, looking for the last time on the hills that hid the tents of his family. Joseph remembered his father's God." Now he'd just been kidnapped, sold into slavery. And what's he thinking about? He's thinking about how much God loves him and cares for him. What do most people think about when there are bad things? Why is this happening to me? Where are you, God? Okay. so somehow Joseph, in, in what's probably the worst crisis of his life, is still thinking about God as, as someone who loves him. That's an astonishing mental feat that he could do that. And that's what we really need to be doing, even when trouble comes upon us. Yeah. I have four or five department chairmen that don't like me because I'm, I can be very unconventional. I've been told I have a very unusual style of teaching. And they don't like it because it's not the way they do it. And they've tried to fire me many times. I've told you all this before. And I actually practice my speech. Every day when I go into work, I don't know if I'm going to be working at the end of the day because I think someone's going to try to fire me. Maybe I'm paranoid. But, you know, they've tried four or five times, actually. And so I'm practicing my speech for when I get fired. And it goes something like this. Thank you very much for doing this. This is such a relief to me. Now I don't have to worry about all the problems that are going on here. And I don't have to watch you slowly destroy the school with your poor decisions. And, but I will terribly miss the students and the patients. Now I would never say that to somebody because they would get very upset with me. But that's what I'm thinking anyway. But I would thank them and I would tell them I really enjoyed working here. But anyway, so in the worst crisis of his life, he's thinking about how much God loves him. He remembered the lessons of his childhood. Okay, so when we go through hardships, think about the principles you were taught about being patient, long-suffering, slow to anger. When you go through a really difficult situation, someone comes up to you and starts cursing you and getting hysterical. I've had people that I love and care about come up and start, they're so angry with me, the fists fly, and they start hitting me and beating me up and stuff. I think we've all been through situations like that. And it's happened to me at least twice. And how did I respond? Did I fight back? No. Did I try to defend myself? No. I put my arms around them, I gave them a hug, And they all calm down. So, you know, when when you're under stress, think about the principles you've been taught of patience and about the life of Christ. What would Christ do? Okay. So it says of him, he remembered, and this is in his dire situation. He remembered the principles of his childhood, and his soul thrilled with resolve to prove himself true to ever and always act as became a subject of the King of Heaven. So here he is in this really desperate situation and he realizes, I am an ambassador of the Lord of hosts and I have to always act in such a way that becomes that person. Now if, if you can go out, next time you're in a difficult situation, remember who you are. You are an ambassador of the Lord of hosts. And you have to act in such a way that you represent, you're represent. you always representing God. And if you do that, you will be astonished at the, the changes that you'll see in people's attitudes. I've done it a few times. Not enough, but a few times I've tried to remember the principles that I was taught. And it's really helped me to calm people down and to get them to and to get them to stop being hostile. and But it's a real challenge, especially today. People have gotten to be very critical, argumentative. I mean, look what's going on in Congress. They're all, both sides are accusing each other of treason and terrible crimes. It's gotten to be the norm to accuse your enemies. And I think that's a, maybe the world was always that way, but. Were any of you ever alive when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was alive? Any of you? FDR? He died in, what, 47 or something like that? 45, okay. When he was campaigning to be president, he never mentioned his opponents. He never mentioned their name. He never mentioned their policies. And someone said, how come you never criticize your opponents? And he goes, First of all, their policies aren't worth mentioning, and I don't want to give airtime to an idea that isn't going to work. So I never mention them. So he was actually fairly gracious towards his enemies. He never criticized them. He didn't. I mean, in public, he he didn't even mention their names. And so, but today it's it's all about what the other person is doing wrong. If when I worked at Lockheed, there was a, a kind of a, tr- fam, a company tradition. We would get new managers all the time on projects, because projects always went over budget, over time, the, con- the government would get upset with us, and so we would cha- fire the old manager and bring in a new manager. And There was a, a tradition that when you got fired, you left three letters on, on your desk for the new manager. And the first letter says, open this letter when things get really difficult. So when things got difficult, the new manager opens the letter and says, reorganize the department. So they'd change the the organizational chart, move people around, and it didn't do any good at all. That's what we're doing at the dental school. About every two years, we completely reorganize the school, and it just doesn't work. And then the, if he says, and if things get worse, open the second letter. And the second letter says, blame the previous administration. Okay. And finally, the third letter says, on the, on the top of the envelope, it says that when things get really horrible, open this letter. So you open the letter, and the third letter says, prepare three letters. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, you know, that. I mean, I watched that happen over... I mean, we had managers come and go all the time. It was really dangerous to be a manager there because you get fired. Every year or two, they'd fire it and get a new manager. It was terrible. And so... And it was hard on the staff, too, because we'd get criticized when projects didn't go right. Some of the things we were trying to do were impossible. But... So I'm used to being criticized. I mean, I've grown up most of my life with... People tell me I'm doing this wrong and that wrong, and, and um, then I got married, and then I got heard a lot more of that. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a wife's job, right? Is to tell you what you're doing wrong and how you can improve. And they do that extremely well, okay? And we're all... <laughs> and often. <so laughs> um, but, you know, it's actually a blessing and an honor to be married and to have someone who's constantly looking out for you. And I hate to admit this, but frequently she's right, okay? <laughs> uh, I really hate to admit that, but, you know, she's often right. So, but, but wives are a wonderful blessing to us. I can't imagine all the trouble I would get into if my wife wasn't there to say, I don't think that's a good idea, or I don't think that's a good investment. Or, I mean, a friend of mine who doesn't communicate with his wife He's a dentist also and, and dental equipment is very expensive and he went out and spent $80,000 on a piece of equipment that he never used once. Okay. But he thought it was really neat, you know, and he ended up never using it and his wife was very upset with him. But he never talked to her about it beforehand. I actually talked to my wife before I make a major investment and she, she shuts it down about 99% of the time. Think of all the money we've saved, you know. Every once in a while, she goes, I think that's a great idea, and I'm astonished. And so we'll go ahead and do it. But most of the time, she's very good at preventing me from disaster. Anyway, let's go back to this. He remembered the lessons of his child, and his his soul thrilled with resolve to prove himself true, ever to become a subject to the King of Heaven. Now this is something I want to train myself to do. I haven't done this enough in the past, maybe not at all, but when I am in a difficult situation, when someone is mad at me, I have to remember that God loves me and that He cares for me, and somehow He'll probably get me through this, and that I have to find a way to be graceful and remember what lessons was I taught. Was it, how was I taught to respond to people when they're angry and cursing you? And what does the Bible say about that when someone is really upset with you? Can you think of any ways the Bible answers that question? Well, what's that? Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek, right. Or there's another one of my favorite passages a soft answer turneth away wrath. And I've used that a couple of times when people start yelling at me, screaming, and I'll just kind of speak in a very soft tone of voice and say something uh, that calms them down. I had somebody swearing at me once, and I, I said to him, he was just he went on for a full minute cursing me, and I said, you know, that's the nicest thing anybody said to me all day. Thank you. So. You know, think about, when you're under stress, think about what the Bible has taught you, what Christ has taught you, what your, hopefully, your mentors in Christ have taught you about how, how to behave. And then take a step in that direction. And you'll almost, not probably 80% of the time, you'll calm things down. And people will respect you a lot for that. So. Now, we've gotten through two paragraphs. And this chapter, it's called Lives of the Great Men. It talks about uh, Joseph and Daniel and Elisha. And there, it's, every sentence is filled with principles and ideas about how we can live a better life. And I'm, I'm really enjoying this book. I commend it to you. Now, these ideas and principles are not unique or original to this book. They're all principles that are found in the Bible I want to make that perfectly clear. She is, Ellen White is a teacher of the principles in the Bible. She does, she's not added any new principles. Um, she's merely highlighting and explaining a lot of the things to them. So I think our goals as a Christian should be to follow the teachings that are I could set up Joseph that his father had taught him well not only I think when she says that his father taught him it also re- replies to his father in heaven and all of us have been taught by our father in heaven so when you are under stress and difficulty remember the principles that your father in heaven taught you and hopefully you'll learn to be merciful forgiving encouraging And you'll calm those down around you. And hopefully you'll get through the next crisis. God will pull you through. May God bless you one and all. Thank you very much.